We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. But I want to begin by just reminding you that the book of Revelation covers the period in which you and I find ourselves in. This period began with the resurrection of Christ and will continue until his second coming. And it gives to us these very vivid pictures and images over and over again so that we see this period, the church age is what it's sometimes referred to, from different perspectives, from different vantage points. It focuses on different characters. So all of the pictures that we see in the book of Revelation are showing us what life for the redeemed people of God look like. And the point of Revelation was to offer John's audience, the churches in the first century, encouragement. He was trying to encourage them to be faithful to Jesus in a world that was very hostile to the gospel. They found themselves in an unbelieving environment. And John's word to them is that Jesus lives. And one of his primary jobs is to make sure that the redeemed people of God make it home. Now John's watching at this particular point in the story, seven angels who are blowing seven trumpets. And with each blast of the trumpet, the wrath of God is being revealed on an unbelieving world, a world that's lost in sin, a world that is in rebellion. We've looked at the first six trumpets and now what we saw in the beginning of chapter 10 is like earlier in the story when we had the cycle of the seven seals. There's this pause. There's this interruption to the story in which we see. The redeemed people of God preserved, protected. We're picking up the material in the second half of that particular interlude, beginning in chapter 1. So if you would please stand as we read God's word. John writes in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is to come. 
The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We invite you to be seated. Now, in the chapter before us, there are three images of the church. There's the church trampled, there's the church testifying, and then there's the church triumphant. So let's look first... At the church trampled. Now, if you recall from last time, at the end of chapter 10, John was given a scroll and he was instructed to eat it. And he said that it would be sweet in his mouth and bitter in his stomach. And this was drawing on the image and the experience of the prophet Ezekiel. And here a parallel continues. In the 40th chapter of Ezekiel, the prophet is given a vision of the temple. And this temple is being measured. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 11, John is given a measuring rod and is instructed to go to measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, because of the nature of Revelation and because of its dependence upon imagery, upon imagery, upon imagery, I do not believe that this is a literal temple that you and I should expect to be built in the city of Jerusalem. But I think when John writes here of the temple of God, he's giving to us a picture of the church. He's giving to us a picture of God's redeemed people. If you flip back over to chapter 6 and 7, there was an interlude similar to what we find ourselves in. And in that interlude, after the wrath of the seven seals have been poured out, we see this vision where John says, I heard the sounds of a crowd of 144,000. We said that 12 tribes of Israel... The twelve apostles multiplied equals 144. The number of thousand is just simply the number of abundance gives us 144,000. It's a symbolic number of the redeemed people of God, both the Old and the New Testament. He also then says, and I looked and I saw this great crowd and it was from every tongue, tribe and nation. And it was so large a crowd that no one could number it. So in the interlude, what we see is that despite all of the chaos, the death, the destruction, the suffering, God's people are protected and preserved and are brought to the presence of God. We get a similar kind of thing in which he gives us this picture of the temple being measured. Paul tells the Corinthians, you are God's temple and this God's spirit that dwells within you. And the idea of John measuring the temple is this. It's a sign of God's ownership. I have a friend who lives in Timberlakes, and his neighbor decided that he wanted to build a volleyball court. The problem is that his neighbor built the volleyball court on my friend's property. So there was somewhat of a little bit of dispute over who owned the land that the volleyball court was built. So they did this. They hired surveys, and they came out, and they measured the plots of land. And it was identified that this particular plot, when it was measured, belonged to my friend and not to his neighbor. That's the idea here. John is measuring the temple. He's measuring and weighing the people of God, and they belong to God. 
But it's also a picture of responsibility. That John wants you and I, he wants God's people to understand this. That we will make it home. Jesus guarantees that he will get his people home. That's the whole point of measuring this temple. It's a way of God saying, I'm taking inventory of my people. I know who they are. I know where they are. And I will keep them to the very end. Paul says that we're living stones being built together in this temple. A living temple. And that Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Why? Why do we need to know that God will, as Paul says in writing to the Philippians, that the one who began this work in you, will be faithful to complete it. Because like the original audience of the book of Revelation, you and I, we find ourselves in a world that hates God. We find ourselves in a world that's hostile to the gospel. And what God wants us to know is that we will make it to the end. Not because we're strong and not because we're faithful, but because he has pledged himself and he will be faithful. Notice what Paul says. He says, but don't measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it has been given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, John kind of shifts gears or technically he shifts images. He gives us another picture here for the church and he says that she's a holy city. And this is a play on words. We've looked at this before in the past that in the temple there was actually a court of Gentiles or a court of the nations. Certain people were allowed access only to that part. But now what John is being told is not to measure this courtyard because it's been given over to the nations and that they will trample this holy city for 42 months. The world is dead set against the rule and reign of Christ. They will rage and they will war and they will try to destroy the church and God's people. John's showing us that we will suffer will suffer at the hands of an unbelieving world. But we've been found, we've been measured, and we will be kept until the very end. You and I, if we are part of Christ, if we believe the gospel, that is, we are trusting in Jesus to save us by his grace, through faith alone, then the redeemed people of God, no matter how bad the suffering gets, and for some of our brothers and sisters throughout history and around the world, the suffering is intense. You and I, we don't really feel it. Maybe we get mocked a little at work. People, you know, call us, you know, holy rollers or Bible thumpers or something like that. But that's about the most that we've experienced. But no matter how bad it gets, we will be protected. We will be preserved and we will be kept by the power of God to the very end. Now, there's this interesting introduction of a number. We've already seen the numbers are symbolic in the book of Revelation. The number seven being one of the most important. There's the seven letters written to the seven churches, which represent the church as a whole. There's also the seven seals that Christ opens, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, the seven bowls of wrath. And then Revelation finishes with seven pictures of the victory of God in the book of Revelation. Seven just means fullness, completeness. If the number seven is important, then multiples of seven also have significance. In this particular passage, we're told that the city will be trampled on for 42 months. Or in verse 3, 1,260 days. The number 42 is just simply seven multiplied by the number six. And the number of days, if you assume 30 days in each month, is corresponding to 42 months. 1,260 days. They're identical in length, and they also have similarities in other uses in the Bible. In the book of Daniel, 
where we are told about 42 months. We're told about time, times, and half a time. Time means one year. Times, plural, means two years. And half a time means half a year. Three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and a half time. They're all the same thing. 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days is symbolic of persecution. The holy city is going to be persecuted for a period of three and a half years or a half a duration of seven years. It just means a period of complete suffering. But the fact that it's only three and a half years and not seven years means that while suffering is a very real part of life and it's characteristic of this age, suffering will not be the story for all eternity. There will one day come to an end of suffering. Jesus himself said, I've said these things to you. He's talking to his disciples. You're going to have, you're going to have trouble in this world. You will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Your life. My life, it's marked by suffering. We hear people who are diagnosed with cancer. We hear stories of people who are cured of car accidents. There are all kinds of natural disasters reported on the news. There's hunger, there's, there's thirst, there's sickness all around the world. We know that this world is marked by suffering and tribulation. But as the redeemed people of God, our confidence is this. God will safely get us home. So there's the church trampled, then there's the church testifying. God, again, John shifts gears, presents us with a third image of the church. Here, she's shown as two witnesses. These two witnesses arrive on the scene and we're told that they will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now again, I believe that these are images of the church and not two people that you and I should expect to see on the news. Notice how verse 3 starts with the word and. The word and joins verse 2 and verse 3 together. They're described as two olive trees and two lampstands, which we've seen in Revelation chapter 1 that the lampstand is a picture of the church in which Jesus stands in the midst of his people. They're symbolic. John says if anyone hurts them, fire pours from their mouth. Now these aren't half dragon men. It just simply speaks to the power of God's spoken word. Other places in the Bible, like the prophet Jeremiah, he's given this call to proclaim, to prophesy to the people of God. He says, it's like a fire shut up in my bones. This powerful testimony is to take place during this 1,260 day period or this time of suffering. Most people describe their ministry to be like the ministry of Elijah and of Moses. For a number of reasons, I think this is correct. When Peter and James and John see Jesus transfigured, you remember he takes his disciples up to the mountain and they see him in all of his glory. They see there with him Moses and Elijah. If you look back at Numbers 33, and if you want to do this later, you can look back at the various stages of Israel's wilderness wandering. And the wilderness wandering is this period of kind of suffering that the nation of Israel goes through between the time she leaves Egypt and between the time she enters into the promised land. There were 42 stages listed in Numbers 33. There's that number again. If you look at four, Luke, I mean Luke chapter 4, James chapter 5, we find that the length of the drought that God's people experienced during the ministry of Elijah the prophet was three and a half years, or 42 months, or 1,260 days. 
We're also told that these men have the power to stop the rain like Elijah. They also have the power of the waters to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague. And this is an echo of Moses going in to deliver God's people from Pharaoh. When Jesus himself was asked about the greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, the Pharisees come to him. They try to trip Jesus up. They say, well, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says this. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbors as yourself. And this is how he summarizes the whole of the Old Testament scripture. On these two commandments depends the law and the prophets. It's a shorthand way of saying the revealed word of God, the law and the prophets. Well, who are these two witnesses? Who's their ministry patterned after? Moses, who is the lawgiver, and Elijah, who is the representative of the prophets. This time of intense suffering is caused because of the church's witness to the gospel of Jesus. When you and I stand and declare that there are consequences to rebellion and sin against God. And that the only hope that men and women have to be saved is that the grace of God comes to us, cleanses us from sin, washes our past, and, 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 uh, and gives us the life that comes by the Spirit. That arouses anger in the world. And it produces persecution. That's what John is telling us. That the church, she testifies, and the world in response persecutes. Jesus said, if the world hates you, just know that it hated me first. So we should expect, as a, as a witnessing church, that we will experience persecution. Now, we don't really feel it. But throughout history and around the world, even now, our brothers and sisters, like Pastor, and I can't pronounce this, it's Zhang Shahoe, maybe, of Nanley County Christian Church in Henan Province. He's currently serving a 12-year prison term for gathering a crowd assembling the church in which the government declared this a disruption of the public order and they fabricated these charges and imprisoned him. A convert to Christianity, Hadi Asgari, was arrested on August 26, 2016. He was on a weekend trip with friends. He and others, including a well-known Pentecostal pastor, were holding a family party. When the police arrived, the officials arrested 17 people and beat everyone there. Christian Chinese Zhao Weiling was sentenced to four years in prison after officials raided a choir practice on June 25, 2014. They were practicing singing hymns at a factory that was owned by a church member. Fifty uh, uh, uniformed, plainclothes policemen raided this practice in, uh, I can't pronounce, Hezi City, Shandong Province. Twenty-two believers were arrested, including a pregnant woman and four children. The church witnesses... The world persecutes. John tells us, though, when the ministry of these two prophets is finished, to God's sovereign, and he's going to accomplish his will. It doesn't matter what the world does. God will still accomplish his will. When the prophets finish their ministry, they face death. But until that ministry, no one can touch them. But once God's will is accomplished, once their task is finished, it says that they are then subject to the wrath of this beast that comes from the bottomless pit. And this beast is allowed to kill them. God in his wisdom allows them to be overcome by the enemy. I think what John is saying is that there will come a time when it looks like the church is dead. When it looks like the enemies of God have defeated his people. I think in some ways you and I are seeing this even now. In Western culture, Europe, America, 
It looks like the church is dying. We hear this all the time. You know, the number of people who identify as Christians or are associated with uh, you know kind of religious practice is on the decline. Now, a century ago, 80% of Christians lived in North America and in Europe. There's been a 50% decline. Now, only 40% of Christians live here. But while we hear all the talk about the fact that the church is dying, the truth is the church is not dying at all. The way she looks is definitely changing. The center of Christianity has moved from Europe and America to what we call the global south. South America, Africa, Asia. Over the past 100 years, Christians grew from less than 10% of Africa's population to 500 million today. One out of four Christians in the world presently is an African. And estimates that it will grow by 40% in the year 2030. Asia is also experiencing growth as Christianity's center has moved south and east. Christianity grew at twice the rate of the population in that continent. In 1949, China had one million Christians. They're expected that number to be around 160 million in the year 2025. The population of Asian Christian population is 350 million right now, and it's expected to grow to 460 million by the same time. There will be a period, John says, where it looks like the witnessing church has been defeated. Where it looks like the beast has conquered her. But the focus of Revelation is to remind us that Jesus will get his people home. So no matter what it looks like, the truth is that the church is the church triumphant. Yes, she's the church who's being trampled on right now, and we experience that. She's the church that's testifying. And hopefully we're doing a really good job of that. But we will someday be the church triumphant. After the seventh trumpet, we see the church in the age that is to come. What's interesting to me is if, if you flip back just a page to uh, Revelation chapter 8, the seventh seal. Remember, we saw all these judgments, the four horsemen of the apocalypse go out. and We get to the seventh seal. And it was kind of anticlimactic, wasn't it? The seventh seal gets open and we see... There was silence in heaven for about 30 minutes. And we said that basically what that means is just there was nothing to be said. It's kind of like in a funeral. There are not words that can be spoken when people endure this kind of judgment and the hell that awaits them. And so heaven is silent. But here we see the people of God and the presence of God. And what we see is not silence, but we see shouts. Notice what happens. The seventh trumpet... Uh, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, Now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of our Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations ranged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets, the saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, earthquake and heavy hell. There is this picture of the end age and the redeemed people of God are safe at home. And they're safe and they're shouting and they're celebrating and they're declaring the beauty and the majesty of the living God. And when it says that God's temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen, it means that the presence of God is now in the midst of his people. 
To the story of the Bible, you remember that God takes a world of chaos and he shapes it and he fashions and he brings order. And in the middle of it, he places Adam and Eve. And before sin and all of its destructive forces enter into the world, they lived in communion with God. They walked with him. They talked with him. But sin enters and it unleashes literal hell. And creation starts coming apart at the seams. And that's what we're living in now. But the story of Revelation is that as everything is coming undone because of the power and sin, because of its presence in our life, one day God will reverse all of those things. And the story that started with people living in the presence of God will end with people living in the presence of God. So Jesus will get his people home. So what is the message of this particular chapter? One, we can't assess the success of a church based on external signs. Think of what the external signs of the two witnesses were. They lied dead in the street for three and a half days. Think of the success of the outer court of the temple. It's trampled on by the nation. Sometimes we can't judge what God is doing in the church based on what you and I see. When the Chinese wanted to persecute Christians, they expelled all missionaries. Known leaders of the Chinese church were executed, imprisoned, but the Chinese church was not dead. God used that suffering and persecution to strengthen, to purify, and to grow his church. It was through this that he brought greater glory to himself. So that 30 years later, when the West was finally able to learn what was going on in China, we realized that the church had multiplied exponentially more between 1950 and 1980 than it had in the previous 30 years. Whether you look at the global church and what God is doing in the South, whether you look at individual churches, we cannot judge success based on external signs. The flip side is true. Just because things are going well for a church is not evidence that she's a faithful witness. A faithful witness is committed to the proclamation of God's word through the speaking, preaching, and teaching of God's word, but also through how God's people live. It looks like the world is winning. It looks like the beast has been unleashed from this bottomless pit and the church is dying. Your hope and my hope is that we serve the king. And the king will bring his reign one day in all of its fullness. And so we wait and we pray and we witness, we testify to God's goodness, God's grace. And God's glory. And we do that by doing exactly what the 24 elders do. By worshiping and declaring the beauty and the majesty of God and all that he has done to bring us salvation. So when it says the 24 elders, that's really you know, just you and me. It's the, the 12 uh, tribes of the Old Testament. It's the 12 apostles multiplied times two. The 24 elders are representative of the redeemed people of God celebrating what God has done. And that's what we do every single week. That's why corporate worship is so important. Because sometimes you come here and you don't feel like celebrating. I mean, the week has just been... Sometimes it's just crappy. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's the last thing I want to do is come here and stand up and try to declare to you something that in my heart I really don't believe. Now, I have those days. I know you have those days. But the person sitting next to you, maybe in that week... Man, maybe they're feeling it. And so when they start singing and you hear them singing, what you can't confess to be true from your mouth, they confess for you. Because, see, we don't just belong to ourselves. We don't just have this one-way relationship with Jesus. But we are a covenant, redeemed people. He saves sinners, but he's saving a people for himself.
We're in this together. There are no spiritual free agents, no Christian Lone Rangers who do this alone. That's why corporate worship is so important. It's because there are some days when it's all we can do is simply take one more step. But Jesus says, I'll get my people home. And oftentimes he uses his people to do that. That's why we're a church that's committed to the ordinary means of grace. We don't have a whole lot of flash. We're committed to the preaching and teaching of God's word. We're committed to prayer and we're committed to the sacraments. That's why every single week we observe communion. Because here, in a very visible, physical way, we see the body that was broken, the blood that was shed in order to save God's people. We're reminded that we are sinners who have been saved by a holy God. And we go out and we get to declare that to a world that will hate us for it. But God will get his people home. God will get you home. God will get his church home. We will one day be in the promised land. And that's not starkle for those of y'all who know, but uh, we will make it there. Let's pray.